0: Well, let's talk about the Apocrypha today. Uh, we actually use the Apocrypha in our lectionary and things, and often that's confusing to people. What are these books? You know, why do we use them? What's their story? Something we'll talk about today. Uh, so we have three things. We'll talk about the Old Testament uh, canon. And a canon, you know, typically it's a Greek word for read, and it's, it's a, like, like a cubit with your arm like this. So it's just a unit of measure. So you're saying, how do we figure out whether something meets the test or not? It's a rule against which you compare something. OK. So the Old Testament canon is the books that are in the Old Testament. OK. And we'll then talk about the Anglican use of the Apocrypha. And then we'll talk about the individual books, so you'll get an idea of what's in there, specifically what's in those in those books. So let's start with the Old Testament canon. Here, you actually from the synagogue. You have various scrolls. That first one there is the uh, Yahshua. Sure. OK, uh, Okay, so uh, let's go here, is how do we end up with different lists of books? That's a good question. Now, remember, the Bible doesn't come down. It's over hundreds of years different books are revealed. And so what happens is the canon was sort of left open. Books kept being added, like new prophets came in. People say, this is the word of God. And so books were gradually added. That's why in the Jewish scriptures you have the Torah, you have the prophets, and then you have the writings which are basically everything after that point goes in. even the prophets are in the writings remember Daniel's in the writing you have this open uh, area and so what happened here so basically the Hebrew Canon is the 39 books of our new Old Testament but the in in the uh, the Jews combined that into they counted as 24 books actually what they're trying to do that we think because at one time the Hebrew alphabet was depends how you count had 24 letters and tried to get one letter for each other in the alphabet. Now they're 22. But that's the, probably why they tried to get it down to to, uh, to 24. Now remember, a huge Jewish community over time had you know, spread out in the empire, in the Eastern Empire, especially Alexander. That's why we have the, the Greek translation of the Old uh, Old Testament. And that's the Bible of the 70. Traditionally, there were 70 uh, translators. And they called the Septuagint. Okay. And they had the 39 books, but they're also, in those Greek Bibles, they had other books. That section, you know, kept growing, that other books, so although the Greek Bible arranged things differently. The Greek Bible, since it was designed for non-Jews, tried to arrange things in sort of a logical order, based on history and things, the you know, history books, like the, the, the order we're used to. Okay. So they had extra books and additions to books. Some of the books in there had more material, had additions to books. Okay. So what happens now, how do we get from 39 books to 24 books? Well, they took the 12 minor prophets and made them a single book. So that's one way you get rid of 12. You need to get rid of, uh, you know, you have to get down, down from 39 to 24. So that gets rid of one, okay? And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah combined into a single book called Ezra and Nehemiah. Chronicles is a single book of Chronicles because actually it is one book. You know, we've artificially said took two scrolls, one book. There's only one book of kings. You know, it's called the Kings, not first and second, because it's just two scrolls for the same book, part one, part two. And same thing with Samuel. So that's why they say they're the same books we have. They just count them different, present them differently in three categories. Okay. Now, why let's talk about the extra books and additions to books. The term we came to use for this was Apocrypha, which is the Greek term for something that's been hidden. Something that has been. Anything with A is a neuter plural. Uh, not everything, but I mean basically that's the neuter plural that means stuff, you know, like, you know, you know so it's, uh, you know, things that have been hidden. Okay. Now there are two possible explanations. One is that they were esoteric. You know, they were more uh, less open, less accessible. The other was that they was a negative explanation. They were spurious. They weren't the real thing. And they're something you shouldn't pay attention to. Okay. As far as the term. Now, let's talk about – it just lists the extra books. We have a book called Tobit, uh, a book called Judith, the Wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Jesus, son of Sirach. This book was so enormously popular that it uh, – especially it's sort of think of the book – we'll talk about it. But think of the book of Proverbs on steroids. You know, people love the book of Proverbs. It's not a book that people just love to read. Well, this was so good about how to live a Christian life they thought of how do you get a decent moral life. That when people came to the church, they often read this book as their preparation. You know, how do you live the Christian life? So, Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesia in Latin means church. Ecclesiasticus means church as an adjective. So, Liber Ecclesiasticus, the Church Book. You know, it, was, it became known as the Church Book. So they talk about, and sometimes people call it Sirach, or they call it Ecclesiasticus for centuries. That's what they call it, simply the Church Book. And the other one uh, would be the, the actual name, though, is the Wisdom of Jesus Son of Sirach. Okay. Then we have Baruch. You recognize he was the prophet. He was the secretary for the prophet Jeremiah. Well, he has his own book called Baruch. And in that, we have a separate cat. Sometimes it's in, sometimes it's not, is the letter of Jeremiah. OK, it's referred to, I believe, in the book of Jeremiah. So whenever the book you're going to find someone come up with it. So it's, it's plugged in there in uh, chapter 6 of Baruch, typically. First and second Maccabees. First Maccabees, is, we're going to find it's an incredibly important book for history because a lot of what we know about the intertestamental period, I mean, general history depends on that book. Okay. Now, what about Esther? One of the problems, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only part of a book of the Bible you don't find is Esther. By the way, you find Ecclesiastes, (coughs) but you don't find anything from Esther. Why not? Esther was sort of problematic because it never mentions God. It's really a pretty secular book. I mean, they fast and things, but it never mentions God. And some people found this a little odd for a book in the Bible. Well, believe me, they made up for lost time. The Greek version of e- Esther has prayers and references to God and God taking action. So it sort of turns it into a much more religious book. So those are called the additions to Esther. You know, So the, the Greek edition of the book in the Greek Bible, when things come up, Esther has prayers. People pray, and we talk about God turning people's hearts. You know, It becomes much more the same plot, but it basically adds prayers and religious uh, you know, material to it. Additions to Aunt Daniel is we have the prayer of Azariah, the song of the three young men. So we have this incredible song we use in the morning prayer. You know, as one of the, the options. is the song of the three young men. Uh, Azariah is one of those three young men. Susanna, uh, these are great. These are two detective stories. We'll, we'll talk about them, the stories, but you can't have to promise no spoilers, OK, for other people. <laughs> Susanna, these are in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Daniel in the Greek version. They have this chapter that comes out of nowhere just involves Daniel as a character. One Susanna about a woman who's unjustly accused of adultery and was saved by Daniel with his, his sleuthing. And we also have Bell and the Dragon, those are two separate episodes. Of Bell, like Baal, is this idol, that they have evidence of how it's real, and he disproves that. He, he, he very cleverly finds a way to disprove that. And also they have this, this dragon, some sort of monster type of thing, and he kills it. And we'll say, he had a special way to kill it. So that's the story of, um, of bell and the dragon. Well, we; those are the books that people normally call, those are the, the ep- Apocrypha. There are other books uh, that were sort of hangers on that are beyond that group. There are first and second Esdras, the prayer of Manasseh, which we actually have in the morning prayer. Okay, we have Psalm 151. Uh, we'll talk about that third and fourth Maccabees. So those are other books. Sometimes, in Catholic churches they call them pseudepigrapha And that means they claim to have false authors. I mean, pseudo, pseudo you know, form false. and are false writings in the sense that they claim to be written by someone who didn't write them. That was the origin of the term. Hmm. OK, and we'll talk about those. But um, so those are other books in addition to the traditional apocrypha. And believe, there are many, many more books. Those are the ones that have ever been considered somehow as serious contenders. Now, how did the resolution come up? Well, first of all, this wasn't even an issue until Christianity. Because at the end of the in the second century, early second century, Christianity and Judaism were now at loggerheads. And so the question is when when Christians were using apologetics against Judaism, some of the best material was coming from these books. So Jews felt a need to say, what's the real Bible? (laughs) And they said, We don't recognize some of these books you have these Christian passages from. And that's not surprising, because the later books, these are all later books, tend to be more Greek. And they really emphasize the resurrection of the dead, which is the best you can find is Daniel, as far as anything clear in the, in the Old Testament. This is, just tells you about you know, the, you know, the eternal life, resurrection, this kind of thing. There's a big theme in these books and things. But other things about And so this was, they said, we've got to figure out what they're, they're going to argue against us, what the books are. And they said, look, there's a difference between what they're doing down there in Egypt and what we have. And we only accept as the Bible those things we've always used here in the Holy Land. Okay. And so uh, that's why they decided, that's how they came up with the definitive canon and said, no, we actually formally reject these books. These The only books we accept are the ones this, uh, you know, this comes in the early second century where they said we just have to, we, we've got to make it clear what is or is not in the Hebrew Bible. now, Here's an example of the kind of things that uh, they did not like. This is a passage we still read, by the way. This is from the Wisdom of Solomon on Good Friday. This is the which is taken as now this was written long before Jesus. Let us lie in wait for the righteous one because he is annoying to us, he opposes our actions. He reproaches us for transgressions of the law and charges us with violations of our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and styles himself a child of the Lord. To us, he is the center of our thoughts, merely to see him is a hardship for us because his life is not like that of others, and different are his ways. He judges us debased. He holds aloof from our paths as from things impure. He calls blessed the destiny of the righteous and boasts that God is his Father. Let us see whether his words be true. Let us find out what will happen to him in the end. For if the righteous one is the Son of God, God will help him and deliver him from the hand of his foes. With violence and torture, let us put him to the test, that we may have proof of his gentleness and try his patience. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to his own words, God will take care of him. You can imagine how a passage like that was popular. Uh, It's like like Isaiah 53 type of passage. So this is from The Wisdom of Solomon, an amazing book. I highly recommend to you The Wisdom of Solomon. Okay, what's about the usage in the early church? In the first three centuries of the early church, people didn't even realize that we were largely a Greek-speaking movement. People didn't even realize there was any difference. This only came among Jews later on, like I said, in the second century. So the fathers quote these books and other books indistinguishably. They make no distinction among those, uh, those, those books. Okay. But in the fourth century, Jerome was entrusted by Pope Damasus with trans- getting a really good Latin translation of the Bible. And he decided, now normally here's what had happened. Is Paul often quotes, sometimes he quotes the Hebrew Bible, But he often deliberately quotes the Greek Bible speaking to Greek people, the Bible they know. And even when the Hebrew text was against it, he'll sometimes quote the Greek instead, because it makes the case better for what he's trying to say. So the Greek church argued that this meant that that was divinely inspired, that the Greek text was the real Bible, as opposed to the Hebrew text. Okay, And not as odd as you would think, because remember, how do do we know how good the Hebrew text was? I'll tell you, that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were so important. So in any event, they, um, that's, so. when Jerome d- decided to do this, though, he was a great scholar. He really learned Hebrew well. And he thought, but no, the real, we call it Hebraica Veritas, that the real Bible is the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And so he insisted on going back to the original text. And he knew Hebrew. Everybody knew Greek, but he knew Hebrew. So he actually went back and discovered this difference. He's saying, some of these books aren't here. And he's saying also some of them, then he looked into it and found out what the story was, and some of these, their books are different. The Greek version of Esther is different than the, the Hebrew version of Esther. Greek Daniel was different from, and so he, when he wrote a preface to each of the books, he said, hey, I've got to tell you, this is not in the Hebrew Bible. So he actually put people on notice, there's something different here. These are not the regular books that the Jews accept in the Hebrew canon. But there was no practical result. People thought, well, that's interesting. But people had always used those books, and that wasn't, uh, wasn't an issue. Then, what happens in the Middle Ages is people, uh, again, when you're writing books by hand and things, people are trying to shorten them, and they said, We can drop the prefaces. So they just kept the actual translation, and so people lost the distinction again. You know, most people didn't even know there was any difference. The first time we really have a difference in modern times is Wycliffe, who did the first English translation of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, had a really good edition that had Jerome's prefaces. And he decided, Hey, if I can do the Bible, let's, you know, he, he translated everything. But he put it like Jerome's preface. I gotta tell you, this is not in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, that's what we get, is we come to the Reformation. Now, in the 16th century Reformation, here's what the real problem, why this became a problem in the 16th century. Normally, for Christians, we had arguments in the early church a lot about the New Testament canon for a practical reason why we didn't for the Old Testament canon. In practical terms, if you look in the Church Fathers, normally doctrine is set from the New Testament. The biggest role of the Old Testament is foreshadowings of Christ, prophecies and things. So it's not really a problem doctrinally and things that, that much. That's not, you're not setting doctrines new. We might find doctrines that are reinforced from the New Testament. We're not creating new doctrines there. The, you know, all of our doctrines are found in the New Testament. We use the Old Testament to illustrate them, but we don't actually come up with anything brand new from the Old Testament. Well, what was happening here is some particularly objectionable features for the Reformers in Catholicism at this time were being justified by things in the Apocrypha, particularly in First Maccabees. Remember in the Torah we have where people out to battle these, some people die. Most of what went wrong? And they end up, they have little idols under their shirts, and that's why they died. We have a similar episode in First Maccabees. Some people die in a battle, a lot of them, and they find out they had these amulets and things on. So what he does, is he decides he goes and offers a sin offering in the temple for them and it says and he says it's a good and holy thing you know to to pray for the dead and so <laughs> this was used as a proof text you know from you know for the and a lot of the church structure is built on i told you getting out of purgatory type of thing and so this suddenly has people asked hard as saying what what are we going to do here and so the general view among Protestants was this is not authoritative. You can't set doctrines from these guys. These are not the same as the actual books of the Hebrew Bible. However, we've read these books for, for you know, basically 15 centuries. The whole church has read them and loved them, especially books like Ecclesiastes. These are big parts of our church life. So their view is they're still very useful. It says, do not despise, was the classic. Do not despise, but make a distinction, saying it's like, you know, they're like, like Pilgrim's Proverbs. These are really good books. We wouldn't want to have them lost from English literature. But we need to distinguish somehow these from the books of the Bible. But they've always been read in the churches. For 1,500 years, they've been read in the church. Lutherans, however, uh, Luther was very idiosyncratic. So he went on to distinguish some of these books he thought were really great for learning and things. But he didn't like the <coughs> Second the Baruch, Prayer of Manasseh, or Additions to Daniel. So he made a distinction. That's not typical. To, well, Luther does things like this. This is a unique Luther thing. OK. So what did the Roman Catholic Church do with the Counter-Reformation? They basically say that the canon includes, uh, basically it includes all the books of the Hebrew Bible plus all of those extra books and additions to books. But they make a distinction. They talk about proto-canonically there's a first canon, the ones accepted by the Jews, and additional books that they also believe are divinely inspired but are a second canon. Like, you know, I don't know if you you study Greek, you know, Deuteronomy is second like Deuteronomy Law, Normus, Second Law, Nomos, so, Second Law. But they're equally divinely inspired. That's why Catholic Bibles always have all of those books you know, arranged in order, in sequence, within the Bible. They're, they're, they're interspersed. However, uh, and they wanted to preserve some other books with those books beyond the regular Apocrypha. So they said, these are really good. They're their version of the Apocrypha. They think, these books have never been universally recognized. But we think they're really good. and We'd hate to see them lost to history. So he said, We want you to put at the back of the Bible in an appendix with a notice, first and second asterisk and prayer of Manasseh, just to preserve them. They actually tell us it, to preserve them so they won't get lost to history. Okay. Now, what happens in the 17th century, the Greek Orthodox Church finally takes a position. And what they do is they take not only all the canonical books of the, of the Hebrew canon, they take the extra, and all the extra books and addition to like the Roman Catholics, but they also add as part of the regular inspired scriptures. First Estras, which Roman Catholic Church is just a book to preserve, Uh, the Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151 and 3 Maccabees. So if you look at a Russian Bible, it has all those books in it. A regular Russian Bible has those books. And they also have a separate category of books. Well, it's not divinely inspired, but we don't want to get it lost, and that's 4 Maccabees. (laughs) Then you get to the Russians, who never found a book they didn't like. Okay, so it's basically the Hebrew canon, the extra books, the editions of books, first and second Estras. 151 and 3rd Maccabees, you know, so they really, um, uh, you know, as, as part of their, their, their canon. Now let's talk about our use of the Apocrypha as Anglicans. We're both Catholic and Protestant. You know, we're truly Reformed Catholics. So we say, we say the Hebrew canon alone is authoritative. That we share because this has been universally recognized. Everyone, you know, Jerome, etc. these are the books there has never been any question about that the whole universe of the church at all has recognized. So these are authoritative. However, we took the view that most the reformers took that the other books are really helpful. We don't, you know, they're really helpful for, quote, for example, let's quote from 39 articles, for example, in instruction. They're good books to use, they're good holy books, they're good religious books. And we were Catholic in saying that we still thought since the church has read them in church for 1,500 years, that we would continue to read them in church. You know, they'd be part of the lectionary, typically in the daily offices. But then when we use them, uh, what we do, for example, is everything else we said, the word of the Lord, we say here at the end of the reading, here ends the reading. So that's where we got our custom from. And when people, uh, Puritans objected, Queen Elizabeth put it this way. She said, she said, I listen to sermons in church every Sunday. We certainly aren't divinely inspired. I can tell you I wish half of the sermons I heard were as good as what I read in these books. So his argument, the idea that we don't say anything is not for the Bible, what do you call the sermon? Is you know, as long as they're identified. That was for the position. <laughs> now, here's what we accept in those books. We accept the, we, first of all, we accept all the extra books and additions to books the Roman Catholics do as being apocrypha. So we read them. Then we also accept first and second Esdras and Prayer of Manasseh for reading. We have those in the lectionary. Which the Romans say should be preserved. We reject it altogether. We just don't use third and fourth Maccabees and Psalm one fifty one. Why is that? Uh, we didn't find anything really that good in them to use in the lectionary. <laughs> they, they didn't really have some of the really magic readings that people loved now now what happened in our Bibles? matter of fact the Puritans hated the idea of anything to do with it if it's not divinely inspired so there was actually an order from the, the you know in the uh, King James Bible that you had to include them but we thought the way to solve the problem was put them in a separate section so there's no possibility not just interspersed we have a special section called apocrypha and that's where we would have them So that's normally what we did. But there are two things that ultimately cause that to be a problem. Is one thing, there's a constant thing people want. The word of the Lord is actually three-quarters of a million, the authorized version of the Bible is three-quarter of a million words. That's the length of the the Bible. That's a big book. And they want books that are are small and handleable but legible. This is a challenge. You're always trying to cut out stuff that, you know, is going to make the book longer. And the Puritans hated them for other reasons. So printers began just ignoring this, you know, forgetting to put in those things, you know. And so that's how they ceased to be. But the actual ordinances required, the law said, the Bibles have to be, have these in a separate section, clearly labeled and things, but so they will have them. So that's what happened to us. Let's talk about the books of the Bible. Now, here's an example. This is from an actual uh, King James Bible, or the original, uh, I took this uh, copy of the original title page. You know, our table of contents. See the Apocrypha? The book's called Apocrypha, the books of the New Testament. And then we have the Old Testament. Okay? So let's talk about the book of Tobit. This was an enormously popular book among regular people. And see that little dog? That's one of the reasons. Why? In the Old Testament, normally, a dog in Middle Eastern culture, like with Muslims to this day, a dog is one step above a rat. In the sense that they were in the Middle East, they're wild and they're normally associated with garbage dumps and things. You know, dogs are not are not are not thought of as pets. And Muhammad said something bad about dogs, so that's why Muslims never them. They have them. In the, in Islam, they have something called the Hadith, which are basically uh, you know sayings of the Prophet. And one of them said, you know, so that's why Muslims never have the dogs are are no no. And so people in Europe, of course, had dogs. And this is one book of the Bible. And these people lived elsewhere outside the Holy Land. And they had a had a pet dog. So the idea of this dog is dealt with favorably, a pet dog, just one. That's why in Europe, look at stained glass and look for the Say – you'll typically find one that will have this. People wanted the stained glass with a dog, a pet dog. So this one of the reasons people love the dog. Market, dog lovers love dogs. Okay. Okay. So let's go through the story. The genre is an inspirational story, and it has a really engaging storyline. I mean, it's a really – it's a good read. I mean, it's a, it's a good story to tell. <clears throat> Very quotable. Some really beautiful quotes in this book. It has some canticles, which are basically Psalms, outside of the book of Psalms type of thing, you know, that kind of thing. Some very nice canticles. And it has, again, the positive presence. I mentioned the dog. Okay. Now, here's some background. The name of the lead character, yes? I don't quite understand the significance of a positive uh, portrayal of a dog. Oh, I was just saying why it became so popular with regular people. Some books of the Bible are more popular than others with regular folks. I'm saying, you know, so. The dog doesn't have a symbolic meaning. None. It's just a, just just thrown in there, but in a world where there is nothing in the Bible ever said, you know, people are looking for something in the Bible. So there's no theological point. I just saying that's why you'll find you wonder how come this book gets so, is so often seen in stained glass in Europe. Is because people just loved it. You know, they you know if you want to donate a ch- window to a church or something, you know, a scene from Tobit. You can also sort of remember your dog. <laughs> no religious significance. You just tags along. But okay, so what happens here? Tobit is uh, is the is the is not actually the main actor here, but the name named after him. He's a faithful Jew who's taken away during the Babylonian, uh, rather the Assyrian captivity to Nineveh, and he remains a faithful Jew there. Okay, so this is he's an exile. Okay, and in the course of his business and things, he makes a loan. This will be important to a relative in another city. Okay, now what happens in his? Uh, sometimes when people have um, part of the disgrace sometimes of being executed is what they do to the body. Like Romans would throw them in a common grave. You wouldn't have separate burial; they just throw them in a common grave. was a way to be disgraceful. Okay. Well, here they weren't allowed to bury the body. They were just left out like garbage, eaten by dogs and things. And he, as a Jew, couldn't do that. So he actually would secretly go out and bury people, you know, who had fallen victim. I assume they were Jews, you know, had fallen, you had been executed for one reason or another. And bury them, which is violated the law because of the right thing. You think of, um, what's the uh, famous Iphigenia? It, or is it, uh, isn't it? Uh, or who is the one who, um, in Greek, has the same thing where we have uh, Antigone? Antigone, rather. Yeah, not Iphigenia, it's the sacrifice. Antigone, right, that kind of thing. So he does that, and eventually he's punished. He loses his goods. He has to go into hiding because he won't give up. They get a the first time of warning and things, and he won't give up. And then he also, talk about a bad day, he loses his eyesight in a freak accident. It's a warm day, and he's under a tree, and a bird above him does his thing, and it goes into his eyes and blinds it. Okay, I'm just telling you the story. Okay. And he's so miserable now. He's in hiding. He's had to leave all his goods behind him, et cetera. He can't. He's blind, etc. And he just says, God, please let me die. I'm ready to go. Please let me die. Okay. Meanwhile, you think he thinks he's having a bad day. Let's get to Sarah. Sarah's in that other city. Is one of the relatives. Now Sarah is related to their family. She's been married seven times. Is she still a virgin? How could that be? Well, there's a demon called Asmodeus. As, as, you probably have heard that, like in all these horror things and things. This is the, you know, a devil's name, Asmodeus, and he has it for her. You know, he has the hots for her. And so, at any event, he won't let any man near her. So every time on the wedding night, before anything can happen. The groom always dies. This has happened seven times. Okay, so that's what's happening, and uh, she's taunted by the servant, saying, hey, Boy, are you bad luck. You're never going to have children, you know the typical thing. And she says, I don't want to go on like this. I'd just rather die. So she appeals at the same time for death. Okay. So what we have here, so where does the story begin? That's where that's where our story sort of begins. And um, that God hears their prayers at the same time and sends the angel Raphael, who's only mentioned in this book. Okay, the book, uh, Raphael, which means healing from God, God heals. Okay, which would be a vital clue to what happens. So God heals, okay. So what happens is Tobit is saying to his son Tobias, look, I got to settle things now, like he's ready to die. I have this big sum of money, we've lost everything else, that I put with some, they owe it to me, I lend them. Things. Why don't you go there to this city I think it's like 100 miles away. I said, go to, go to that city and get that. You know, you can take that, but you can use that to set up. Okay. And he said, "Look, looks is be a dangerous journey. I want you to go and hire a guy. You understand the ancient world. You never travel alone. You have to have somebody with you and things, not just for guy, but in sense, to protect you. There aren't regular police. Okay. So he said, go out and find somebody reliable who can do this. So he goes out and, uh, you know to like okay, and he hires Raphael. He finds him in the bar. He doesn't know he's an angel, of course. Raphael's in disguise. He claims to be some tribe or something. And the two are, of course, accompanied by Tobias's dog on the journey. They take off on the journey. And then we have an incident at the Tigris River. At the Tigris River, what happens is, you know, Tobias is there just washing up, and this big fish comes and tries to eat his foot. You know, sort of grabs it onto his foot. And, and Raphael says, grab it! And he grabs it, and he says, I want you to take out the heart and the liver. Okay. And they're going to, uh, the heart and the liver, and then the gall. The heart, the liver, and the gall. These are going to be medicines. Remember Raphael got heals. And we're going to find out a special use for heart and liver. It's going to be used as something to get rid of demons with. And we're going to find out that uh, the gall is going to be used to cure the eyes of children. We'll find that later on. It's sort of this point. Okay. So he takes us out of this fishing. takes it with him. Okay. now, they stop at their home on the kinsmen. The, the kids, I'm sorry, the kinsmen aren't the ones they had to loan the money to. It's beyond them. But they, they're on the way. So they stop at their kinsmen, then they're going to go to the city where you're the business part. I'm sorry. OK. And so he has the right, because he's a married thing, he has the right to take her as a bride. He, you know how that works in the Bible. You know, he's the next one in order. And and Raphael says, you should do it. I think you should marry her. Now, you think with her seven-time record. He says, it's going to be OK. I'll take care of it. Okay. The father is so skeptical that on their wedding night he goes out and opens a grave so he won't have to we won't have to dig it in the morning. I love that part. I laugh so hard. He digs the grave. The is over there saying, "You know, this always happens. You know, the grave will be ready. to will the body and move on to to." I'm to honey- be going into your wedding chamber and you see the father and the bride and the <laughs> digging. Digging away, yeah. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's why you never want a honeymoon with your your in laws. Okay. <laughs> so in any event. Uh, what happens, though, is he, uh, <laughs> Raphael, okay, uh, is the prayer is they actually have this burner, you know, with the, the, the lights on, he says just throw that gall, uh, the burnt heart and liver rather, throw that on there and it'll create with the incense. And that's going to create that, he says, demons can't stand it. And so he can't. And so she actually, they become together as man and wife and then the, sort of the spell was broken type of thing. Now they can live a normal life. Okay. So, what happens here is, meanwhile, Raphael, then they, they stay. Raphael runs off to get the money, comes back, and they go home. Uh, what happens here is, uh, they return, uh, Raphael, Tobias, and his new wife return to Nineveh. And when he comes, Raphael actually takes that, remember the gall, the gall and he puts it on, on his eyes, and, he's, and it comes off like little seals or something. And suddenly he can see, like you know, little pasty things coming off his eyes. Nice he can see. And then Rothwell said, "Well, actually, I'm an angel of God. <laughs> I'm not just really the world's best guy. I'm an angel of God." When he's trying to pay him off, he said, Dead, "Forget that. I'm an angel of God." Okay. Story concludes. Tobias and Sarah have a family in Nineveh, uh, right? So Tobias is sent back with his wife and children, his wife's family, on account of Jonah's prophecy. So you know, saying this is trying to tie try the rest of the Bible. You know, Jonah's prophecies. They leave Nineveh. Okay and return uh, brings joy to sarah's family They go and live to a ripe old age with with her family okay that's the story of of tobit okay which is the most folklore of all these things you know a folkloric story now judith was an enormously popular thing because of its religious import. judith is the most popular portrayal of a woman in any of these books in the bible i mean this is like a deborah writ large. I mean, really, uh, she's an amazing character. And so, that's he's carrying the head of Holofernes, a man who made the mistake of getting in her path. Okay. So, here's what happens. Inspirational story. And it's really, really popular because it's a, a really moving plot, plot line. And as a female protagonist, I mean, this, this, is, this, this could be a woke character. That kind <laughs> of, uh, I mean, she is really there. So, what happens with her? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, had gone to the east on fighting his enemies. And what happens is he says, OK, I need taxes of it. To help me out. Send troops and things. He sends back to the west. They say, oh, he's gone. What can he do? So they ignore him. You know, They sort of they say, we're not going to help you out. You're, you have your hands set up. What are you going to do about it? OK. So he sends his chief general, Holofernes, on a punitive expedition to punish people who refused to send troops. OK? OK. So what he does is one of those groups that refused was Israel, which is now a vassal state. and. Judith lives in a town that's in a mountain pass that you have to get through to get to Jerusalem. And things. So everything depends on this. is an important, critical uh, situation for an army to pass through. And so, uh, so what happens here is the trouble, they're on a hill. Hills are really good places to defend, but there's one terrible thing about a hill. What can you think of that would be? What's the first thing that can go wrong if you have a siege? Water. You can live without food. You can't live without water. Water is the hardest thing, so they had stored water in a cistern. But the fact is, if you have a really long seat, you're going to run out of water because water's not up here; it's down there. And so, what then? Hallefernes goes and b- blocks off the wells, and you can imagine what had to get to the point where they're running out of the last of the water, saying, "That is no, we're all going to die. You can't survive without water." Okay. So she actually takes the lead, and she, you know, she asks him for the prayers and things. You know, it's a very religious book, but she says, "Look, I have." To, so she goes off. And she comes like sort of an emissary to Holofernes and saying, you know, I think you're right. You know, I'm just, she pretends, you know, sort of like a, well, you know, I think I could get them to surrender or something, you know, I just well, you promise me if you do, you know, she plays the woman thing really to, to the hills, you know, could you? And so, uh, but she beguiles him. You know, she's really good looking in things. And so maybe we could, we could do something here. I mean, if she, she should, you know, he sort of takes her in. She gets them all drunk first. And then when he's really drunk, she cuts off his head. But she sneaks out of the tent. She has her servant with her. They sneak out, and she goes back to the city. And when they come up now to take the city, they think they got to, you know, they hold up his head, and you know, they, you know, say, ah, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> and they all run away. Okay. <laughs> But it's actually a good read. Uh, it's a pretty uh, you know, good story, but she takes the lead. And so people loved it because it was really a, a very positive leadership portrayal of war. OK. Now, additions to Esther. <clears throat> I said Esther's biggest problem is that it doesn't seem particularly religious. OK, no mention of God, although there is a fast. Okay. So what do they add to the Greek version of Esther? Mordecai, they give more information on how Mordecai saved the king's life. Remember, we mentioned that in passing. It talks more detail and it, it has a dream that includes uh has the jews appealing to, to god for help uh we have prayers from very nice prayers from mordecai and esther uh when she risks her life appealing to the king. she invokes god and changes his heart she's lord i'm coming in here i'm yeah you know, i'm a, you know like a lamb before lions I'm, I'm counting on you they're really beautiful prayers you know she has for this the king has a second letter in favor of the jews praises their religion so those it makes it a very religious book okay Wisdom of Solomon, this is an amazing book. Wisdom of Solomon is the most Greek of these books. And uh, remember that passage we read before? That was from the Wisdom of Solomon. Okay, And here are the topics. It's very didactic. It's a teaching book, and people love that. But it really is steeped in sort of the Greek worldview about how you approach things, which is very Western. It's more say Greek, it's, it's become Western. So it's very accessible to people like us with a Western, you know, Greek type of background. It talks about how do you, how do, how the godly life uh, uh, how the god oh, how, how do the godly view life I mean really if you believe in God what does that how does that how does that affect how you look at life and it says how the godly view ungodly view life it shows that we have a fundamental difference in worldviews uh, destiny of the righteous destiny of the ungodly wisdom and her works you know, like in the book of uh, book of uh, Proverbs. It shows wisdom and work all the way from Adam through Moses, you know, at work. It talks about the origin folly of idolatry, and it talks about Israel versus Egypt, how God's separate treatment of them, you know, how different it was. Now, here are the readings we actually have in the original 1662. Like these, I like I put these for you because these are what we consider the really good readings. And let me show you one here that I think is amazing. It's typically it was used at funerals because this is so clear on the belief in the afterlife. The best we can get otherwise is Daniel. But talk about this as a book. The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment shall touch them. They seem, in the view of the foolish, to be dead, and their passing away with thought an affliction, and they're going forth from us utter destruction. And that's a technical term. I mean, like, they, they are no more, annihilation. OK, but they're in peace. For if to others, indeed, they seem punished. This they were talking about martyrs and things. It says, yet is their hope full of immortality. Chastise a little. They shall be greatly blessed, because God tried them and found them worthy of himself. As gold in the furnace, he proved them. As a sacrificial offering, he took them to himself. In the time of their judgment, they shall shine and dart about as sparks through stubble. They shall judge nations and rule over peoples, and the Lord shall be their king forever. Remember, the rule over peoples is like judging. We talk about the the apostle sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Judging is a technical term in Hebrew. The book of Judges, if you're not aware of that, okay this is in Hebrew Greek but that's the idea those who trust in him shall understand truth and the faithful shall abide with him in love because grace and mercy are with his holy ones and his care is with the elect but the wicked shall receive a punishment to match their thoughts since they neglected righteousness and forfeited the Lord for those who despise wisdom and instruction are doomed that's about as clear a thing about the resurrection hope in Roman Catholic funerals that's always read is one of the, the verses that typically read as the Old Testament reading in the Catholic Old Testament. Then the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, called the, the, the church book Ecclesiasticus. This is a really great read. It's a teaching thing. It's originally was written in Hebrew because we actually have the prologue of the translator. It's his grandson saying, look, my, my grandfather wrote this book. I'm really proud of that. But, you know, I have to translate it here because people can't read Hebrew anymore. And he said, you know, I got to tell you, though. I love this, you know, for, for, for translators, this is true when you're bilingual, they say, I got to tell you, it's not really the same in Greek. Hmm. And by the way, we later have recovered a copy in Hebrew. You know, eventually we were able to, re- you know, but, but, you know, it was originally hidden in Hebrew, but he says it's just not the same. I love that, you know, it's it's, it's the words, but it just feels different. It's a beautiful, translators love this preface. You know, I love grandpa, I had had to read my grandpa's work, but I gotta tell you, if you read this in Hebrew, you'd really be amazed. Okay, and we actually find fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a really, and I'll tell you why it's such a popular book. Uh, Here are some readings from the the BCP lectionary. Uh, Praise of wisdom, duties toward God, humility, responsible use of wealth, the majesty of God, wisdom and folly, preserving friendship, praise of wisdom and the law, difference in nature among men, the value of independence. Look at all the law and sacrifices. What it really does is, you know, it, think of the book of Proverbs, except you put the Proverbs together, like, into paragraphs, and you organize all the material by topic. Like, say, hey, when you're looking for a friend, here's what you want to look for. Remember new friends are nice but it's the old ones you don't count anyone in front until you've tested them until something has come up that you see you can dry out I mean really it's a, a fountainhead of practical wisdom that's why people loved it it's like a, a self-help book <laughs> but with God's help okay I'm going to show you here uh, caution in taking advice saying I love this this is practical and false wisdom It talk about physicians and health doctors love this in the Catholic Church it talks about the and it actually talks about our doctrine on, on doctors I'll show you that Here's how I'm taking advice. Every counselor praises counsel, but some give counsel in their own interest. So you say, watch out. Sometimes people who give you advice are really giving advice for their best interest. Something to remember. Always remember, a counselor might be looking after his interest. Be wary of a counselor and first learn what is interested. Before you take advice from somebody, know where they're coming from. I was a business guy. Let me tell you this. You have to know where people are coming from. How do they make a living? What do they want out of this deal? Okay, he says that. For he will take thought of for himself lest he cast a lot against you and tell you your way is good and then stand aloof the to see what will happen to you. So make sure before you take advice that they really have your best interest at in heart. He says, don't consult one who looks at you suspiciously. Hide your counsel from those who are jealous of you. Don't let, don't let jealous people know what you're thinking. These are practical words I, in modern English translation. Okay. Oh, I love this. Don't consult a woman about her rival. You know, so you know, some, you know, if there's a rival, she's going to say all sorts of bad things, right? don't consult a coward about war because he's going to find reasons not to go to war. They say, don't, don't ask advice, should we go to war, to a coward because a coward is always going to find, give advice not to go to war. He has never, uh, with a merchant about barter, saying don't ask a merchant what he really thinks his merchandise is worth. Obviously, he's going to try to inflate it. Uh, with a buyer about selling. With a grudging man about gratitude. Uh, with a merciless man about kindness. With an idler about any work. Or with a man hired for a year about completing his work. He's saying, if you hire a guy for a period of time, guess what? He's not going to worry about finishing the project. He says, not input, but output. Okay, or with a lazy servant about a big task. <laughs> like I was a manager saying, ask, ask employees how long they think this will take. You know, okay. Pay no attention to these in any matter of health. You can see how practical this stuff is. You know, people loved it. Uh, but stay, stay constantly with a godly man whom you know to be a keeper of the commandments. He said, you hang around people who are you know, good uh, you know, religious people, whose soul is in accord with your soul and who will grieve grieve you, grieve you, grieve with you if you fail. And establish the counsel of your own heart. You know, be your own man. You know, for no one is more faithful to you than you are. If you don't look out for yourself, who else is? He says, you know, for a man's soul sometimes keeps him better informed than seven watchmen sitting in a high watchtower. Hear your own instincts. And above all these things, pray to the Most High that he may direct your way in truth. Now, what about doctors? Okay. Make friends with the doctor, for he is essential to you. God has also established him in his profession. From God, the doctor has wisdom, and from the king, he receives sustenance. Knowledge makes the doctor distinguished and gives him access to those in authority. God makes the earth yield yield healing herbs, which the prudent should not neglect. Was not the water sweetened with a twig? Remember, with noses, the water. Twig is a little underplayed. So that all might learn his power, he endows people with knowledge to glory in his mighty works, through which the doctor eases pain and the druggist prepares his medicines. Thus God's work continues without cease in its efficacy on the surface of the earth. Here again, my son, when you are ill, do not delay, but pray to God, for it is he who heals. Flee wickedness and purify your hands, clean your heart of every sin. Offer your sweet-smelling oblation and memorial, a generous offering according to your means. Then give the doctor his place. So he's saying, I'm, he's saying, yes, the first thing we turn to is God, but that doesn't mean we neglect medicine. He's saying we do both. There's no contradiction. Of course we pray to God, but God made doctors as part of how he heals. So he said, then, offer, then, he says, then give the doctor his place, lest he leave. You need him too, for there are times when recovery is in his hands. He too prays to God. That his diagnosis may be correct and his treatment bring about a cure. Whoever is a sinner before his maker will be defiant toward the doctor. <laughs> I bet your What's that? I bet your oh yes, yes. <laughs> he says something else. My father would always nudge me in church whenever he... there's a pang where he says, uh, "Talk about to, to honor the honor to parents." He says, "Be uh, be respectful of your father, even when his old age and he starts to lose his mind." Basically, <laughs> and he, you listening? My father, <laughs> are you listening? Sadly, he never grew to be an old man, but, uh, <laughs> but he was getting ready. Okay. Baruch, uh, including the letter of Jeremiah. Okay. And it's prophetic and liturgical. I mean, there's some things that were meant, obviously, to be read in, in ceremonies and synagogue. Uh, he's a, he was Jeremiah's second. There's two parts. First of all, there's this confession of sin, which is designed as a liturgical prayer of confession. And we have two poems. One's a praise of wisdom, and one's for comfort and restoration. Okay. Now, the letter of Jeremiah is typically presented as chapter 6 in Baruch, and it's arguments against idolatry. And he argues you're going to need to know about this because you're going to be in exile for some time, and the temptation is going to be great when you're actually around this stuff. It's always our temptation to blend in with people around us. Nothing is so crazy that we will look at the things. If somebody told me as an old man, if even 10 years ago, that people would talk about homosexuality and transgender as being normative, I say, you must be out of your mind. There's no way anyone could take this as being normal. And he's saying, so the idolatry can see. Well, you're around and everybody, all these rich, you know, successful people, it's going to seem normal to you. So that's why he uh, thought it would be necessary for them to have special. And I'm here's two readings from Baruch. Uh, Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery. Put on forever the splendor of glory from God. Wrapped in the mantle of justice from God, place on your head the diadem, the glory of the eternal one. For God will show you splendor to all under the heavens. You will be named by God forever, the peace of justice, the glory of God's worship. Rise up, Jerusalem, stand upon the heights, look to the east and see your children, gathered from east to west at the word of the Holy One. Rejoice in that they are remembered by God. Led away on foot by their enemies they left you, but God will bring them back to you, carried high in glory at the royal thrones. For God has committed that every lofty mountain and the age-old hills will be made low, that the valleys will be filled to make level ground, that Israel may advance securely in the glory of God. The forest and every kind of fragrant tree have overshadowed Israel at God's command. For God is leading Israel in joy by the light of his glory with the mercy and justice that are his. So this is like shades of Isaiah of the return of the children of Israel. Additions to Daniel. Okay. Okay. So we have the prayer of Azariah, the son of the three young men, Susanna, and then Bel and the dragon. The prayer of the Azariah is devotional, liturgical. Azariah is the Hebrew name of one of the three men in the fiery furnace. Okay. It's a song of praise. It's actually one of the canticles we use in the daily offices. Okay. It's inserted in the Greek Bible between verse 323 and verse 324. And you'll recognize this. Glorify the Lord He works the Lord, praise Him, highly, exalt Him forever. In the firm of His power, glorify the Lord, praise Him, highly, exalt Him forever. Uh, I won't read all this to you, but it's in the 79 prayer book you'll see. It. And it's also in the uh, uh, 2019. But, you know, it's a beautiful, you know, canticle. It's like a song. And then we have the Song of the Three Young Men. Uh, uh, you know, that's a canticle well, right now. The Song of the Three Young Men. See that here. Let the, let the people of God pray glorify and praise Him and highly exalt Him for her grace of the Lord, etc. Okay, Susanna. It's an inspirational story set in Babylon. It's a virtuous wife falsely accused of adultery, and she's saved by the intervention. So here's what happens. <coughs> They're in Babylon. There's a, there's a successful Jew there, and he has a gardens, you know, a walled gardens, which you'd have in Babylon in his house. And they actually use that sometimes. That's where the community gathers. You know, you let the community, gathers. like we have house they gather there. So what happens, she's this beautiful, beautiful uh, woman. And for some reason, it's like David, these two elders for uh, a lecheress, they catch sight of her coming out of her bath, you know, when, they, when everything closed up. You know, they were dawdling getting out of the garden. Well, when she thought everyone was gone, the servant goes out and she takes a bath in the yard. And they catch sight of her and they want to, to have her. So what happens? They arrange the next time everybody gets together, you know, for the union. They deliberately hide, and when everyone's away, they come up to her and say, "Now look, here's how it's going to be. You're either going to be friendly with us, or we're going to say that we caught you here with a young man committing adultery, you and you'll be killed. You know, so you can either live and have us have our way with you, or you can, or we're going to." And she, she's, she trusts God. You know, she'd rather face that. So she. Uh, so they call out, hey, look, that's so what we found. You know, she was this young man. He ran over the wall. He got over the wall. He was too fast as roll, role, but we caught her. She was in, you know, in the act of committing adultery. Okay. So what happens is they bring them, and these are elders and things, and they have two witnesses as required by the law, and Daniel's a young kid is showing his wisdom, and Daniel's a young man and says, is this how you treat a daughter of Israel? And they feel that the word of God is upon him. So they ask, well, let, let him speak. What does he have to say? And he said. Okay, let's, let's examine them separately, so they don't hear each other's testimony. Uh, this is, uh, for example, how you do things in the English system of law and can't, You can't be in the courtroom and hear other witnesses if you're a witness, so you can't tailor your testimony. So he asked the first one, okay, what kind of tree was it under? And they had to make it up, and they didn't have time to get their stories together. The other got a different tree at a different location. They didn't have the right location. So he says, look, they've contradicted themselves. And the law says, so they are the ones who, um, uh, who, who get killed. And they praise the fact that God had saved her. He used Daniel to save this beautiful daughter of Israel, who rather than save her life, would die to preserve her honor. So that's the story of, of Susanna. Bel and the Dragon, added of chapter 14, it's an inspirational story. Bel is Baal, right? the I idol, the chief god of Babylon. And they argue there's a daily miracle. And the king says, him, look at this. We put in this huge feast every day, and when we come the next morning, it's all gone. You know, I personally lock and seal the doors in the temple at night. All the food's gone the next morning. That's proof that Baal's hungry, he eats the food. And Daniel says, what if I could prove that's not true? He said, well, you can't, but you, you said, let me, I'll, here's what he does. So what he does is secretly, as they're going around here, after he goes, before the, he locks the doors, you know, all the food's there, he basically puts um, ashes on the floor, you know, a very light coat of ashes. So what happened, then they seal the door, and they stay there by the door all night you know, to prove it. I said, so I'm going to show you my God is a real God. And then what happens the next morning is they come in and say, look, all the food's gone. I said, look at the little footprints. And what happens is there's a secret entry under the. T- see the people coming out from under the altar there? There's an underground chamber where all the priests and their families and so would eat, the, eat the food every day. And he said, you know, they have this, so you can figure that." So that's how he proves that Bell is fake. So the ashes on the floor, next board, footprints and the see the footprints in the idol is demolished.
1: Then we have the
0: dragon, the part two of this chapter, inspirational story. He gets together this, conco- uh, this concoction of pitch, fat, and hair. Well, that would get anyone to gag. To kill a dragon worshipped as a god. So king forced to put Daniel in the lion's den. Habakkuk is actually brought from Judea to Babylon by an angel to provide Daniel with a meal. You see a lot of Pictures of that in medieval churches. That even be carried by his hair, you know, type of there. Okay, <laughs> the king is happy to find Daniel alive at the end of seven days, and Dan- Daniel's enemies are. Um... Oh yeah, you see, he kills the dragon, but people are upset. You did this to our god, and so they put him in a, in a in lion's den again. He might it might be a timeshare. I don't know, but you know, <laughs> he's, he's back there. Okay and he's found alive at the end of seven days, and his enemies are immediately thrown in the same pit, and they're devoured immediately. Okay. First, Maccabees. This is a very important book for understanding intertestamental. It's a really good history. And so what First Maccabees is about is the, its history, and it's focused on the story of the Hasmonians. These are the people who restore, uh, you know, a real Jewish power in this area. And what had happened is, after Alexander the Great, when Alexander dies, he, div- his, he divides his empire among his generals, like the Greeks, the Ptolemies in Egypt. That's a Greek name. Become you know become the, in Egypt the Seleucids, in Syria and things, etc. And so what happens here is uh, there are five brothers, the Maccabees, and it's Alexander. We talked about his, uh, the, the Seleucids here. Okay. What happens is they decide that they're always fighting. The trouble with Palestine, that area there, or you know, the Holy Land, is it's between Egypt of great power and the powers of the north, Assyria or Babylon. It's always in between the two. And so they're fighting over this. And so Antiochus Antiochus IV, called Epiphanes, which means glory of God. Talk about a blasphemous saying, you know, he's um, he actually now takes over the area, and he decides the way to unite the empire is forced Hellenization. He opens up, for example, they tell us, a, a, a gymnasium in Jerusalem. You say, what's so shocking about that? You say, I go to the gym. Okay, no, no. In Greek games were, were violations of everything Jews thought about because they were always in the nude, if you're aware of that. That's we were gymnasium. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're in the nude, and this is, nudity was forbidden to Jews, his confounding the body, and cetera, like this, but the whole thing about, about this. But he's, uh, he actually comes to the point of, uh, they, he, he, of course he plunders, um, he makes it illegal to circumcise your children and things. If, uh, if, if they found a circumcised child, he was tied around his mother's neck and they were both killed. You know, they, uh, he wanted to end he, any scroll, owning a scroll of the Torah was a death, uh, death penalty. He wanted to eliminate local religions in favor of this, you know, general uh, general practice. He builds a citadel near the temple, which is considered sacrilege, having you know a citadel near the temple. Later on, with Rome, they will come the Antonia, okay, and he again outlaws the practice of Judaism. Well, he comes to a town called Modin, and Mattathias there is a priestly family, the father of five sons. What he does, he leads a revolt. He's told as a leading citizen to. the leading citizen he should get off the first sacrifice. And he'll do no such thing. And like, you uh, know, with Moses and things, he actually uh, kills uh, the, they have somebody else who volunteers to go up and do it, and other Jews say, I'll do it. You know, trying to get in good with the with the uh, governor. And he is so enraged with the righteous, like it, Dienhaus with righteous into She goes up and kills him, slays and then they, they all raise a and slay the party. And it starts a war, a rebellion. And these are the Maccabean wars, you know, War, you know, Judas Maccabeus and they the war of the Maccabees. Okay, and they actually uh, the Judas Maccabeus is the uh, Maccabeus is really the hammer. Okay, is the is what it means is he's the son of Mattathias, and he actually purifies the temple. The, the beautiful description of the purification of the temple. You know, the, it had been desecrated. They'd offered pigs on the altar. They'd set up a, an idol, etc. How do we? What do we do to cleanse it? For example, they decided to get they had to get rid of the altar. They tore it down and put up a new altar of uncut stones. And they said, "We don't want to do. We'll just have to let's, let's bury the stones in the holy place until the prophet comes and can tell us what to do." But we'll just, until then, we'll just <laughs> so he does that. This is where we get the story, not from this book, but the Talmud in commenting on the stories. This is where we get the idea of Hanukkah, which is the feast of purification, is the idea they didn't have enough oil, and the oil mysteriously lasts one day supply lasts for eight days. That's not in the book of Maccabees. But it was a, a Talmudic commentary, a focal on that, is where we get the feast from. But this is the feast is from uh, is from this reading in Maccabees on the actual restoration of the temple. Okay. When uh, successful, okay, uh, Antiochus dies. They enter into a treaty with the Romans. You know, are really the growing are starting to move into the region. Okay, Jonathan is appointed as high priest, and uh, he's also a military leader. He combines basically this is like combining the priesthood. And the kingship, you know, he really combines these. So it's a pre, sort of a strange, a royal, a warrior priesthood. And it comes here. And his claim to the priesthood is based on his zeal. That this is sort of a God's special call to him. He doesn't have any of the regular calls. <laughs> he is from a priestly family, but his basic claim to the high priesthood, he does come from a priestly family, is that, you know, my zeal shows I'm chosen. <clears throat> Simon retakes the citadel. You know, this is the real sign, this military presence, it was impregnable. Uh, time of Liberation, uh, John Hyrcanus, uh, the son of Simon, grandson of Mattathias. Okay, so this is the history of how we know a lot of what happens here in that period. It's good history. I mean, it's backed by archaeology and things, good history. Second Maccabees is very different. Okay, it's, a, it's not a continuation of this book at all. It's called, this is a technique, this is not meant to be a, a literary criticism. It's called pathetic history. It's like a melodramatic type. Of, they want to emphasize emotions and things. And so they really, there was a, a style of writing. So what we have, for, and there's a heavy super, it was actually a condensation, they tell it. So a five volume work. You know, make it work. It's sort of like their version of Fox's Books of the Martyrs. It's basically, imagine a Jewish version of Fox's Books of the Martyrs. These are some amazing stories. There's one woman who saw all seven of her sons gris- uh, executed in a grisly fashion in front of her. They were uh, flayed alive and then and cooked in pans, you know, you know, large, you know, it's horrible. But they said, we have, because we hope in the resurrection, we know that if we die, we will be raised. So it's a beautiful testimony of the resurrection. And she's killed at the end, too. Again, uh, although uh, only through Jews, it's not focused on the family at all. The focal points are the temple, Jerusalem, the Jewish people. Belief in the resurrection of the dead is just central to this book and the power of prayer. OK, now let's talk about going into the beyond what's in like would be in the Catholic Bible and things, into the second tier, which they said, let's keep these. First Esdras is a history. And what it basically is, it's, imagine the last portion of Second Chronicles followed by the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's basically a reworking of that material, a retelling, sort of like Chronicles or retelling of Kings. It's sort of a retelling. That's all That's all that Esdras, second, uh, First Esdras is. Now, second Esdras is completely different. It's apocalyptic. You know, all these images and things we talked about last week, okay? It's based on seven revelations about the mysteries of the moral world. Seven revelations, okay? And the problem is how can, with bad things happening to us, how can God be just? Isn't that a basic theme of apocalypse, as we said? How can God be just when everything seems to point that he's not from the sufferings we have? That's second Esdras. The prayer of Manasseh. Is something we have in our in our prayer book is when we talk about the uh, prayer uh, that we have of a, a song of penance, the song of penance we have. It's his repentance, and we use it in the daily. It's just fifteen verses long. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful prayer. O Lord and ruler of the hosts of heaven, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of all their righteous offspring, you made the heavens and the earth and all their vast array. All things quake with fear at your presence. They tremble because of your power. But your merciful promise is beyond all measure. It surpasses all that our minds can fathom. O Lord, you're full of compassion, long suffering and abounding in mercy. You hold back your hands. You do not punish as we deserve in your great goodness, Lord. You've promised forgiveness to sinners that we may repent of their that they may repent of their sin and be saved. And now, O Lord, I bend the knee of my heart and make my appeal sure of your gracious goodness. I've sinned, O Lord, I've sinned, and I know my wickedness only too well. That's a beautiful prayer. That is the entire book of, you know, the, the prayer of Manasseh. You recall Manasseh was one of the worst sinners in the Old Testament. According to rabbis, he was the worst because he sacrificed his own son, you know, to Molech. But he repents, showing that even he, you know, he repents, and this is his prayer of repentance. And the, uh, Psalm 151. It's actually an unnumbered psalm. People call it one psalm, but it's basically uh, liturgical poetry. It's basically what should David have written about uh, his victory over Goliath. So we have a psalm that he would have written uh, in his victory over Goliath. And here is very short. Okay, I was the smallest of my brothers, the youngest of my father's house. I was grazing my father's sheep. My hand made a musical instrument. My fingers adjusted the harp. And he, and who will make the announcement to my Lord? He, the Lord, listens. He sent his messenger. And he took me away from my father's sheep. He anointed me with the oil of its anointing. Uh, my brothers were handsome and tall, but the Lord took no pleasure in them. I went out to beat the ford and he cursed me by his idols, but I pulled my sword from his side. Uh, I cut off his head and removed shame far from the sons of Israel. Enjoy. That was Psalm 151. And it's just an undefined, actually a title. Some people said it seemed to be a psalm, and I said, well, it's like an extra psalm. Third Maccabees has nothing whatsoever to do with the Maccabees. The subject was actually about persecution of Jews in Egypt. And the most famous episode is the Drunken Elephants is what they did is uh, they um, you know, came up with this mixture with their food, you know, of, of, of make them wild. And what happened is instead of turning on the Jews who were in this amphitheater, the elephants turned on the audience. So that's why there's a uh, an old engraving of of that. That's the thing people remember from Third Maccabees. Fourth Maccabees is Greek philosophy. Look at how it reads. As I am about to discuss, a most philosophical proposition, namely whether devout reason be sovereign over the passions, I would willingly advise you to give the utmost heed unto this philosophy, for the subject is necessary to everyone as a path of knowledge. Does that sound like a a work on philosophy? Because it is. So basically, Fourth Maccabees is just a philosophical work and the reason we call it forth Maccabees, he takes a lot of his examples you know, of the, of the power of you know, his true knowledge from the martyrs of 2nd uh, Maccabees. And Pseudepigrapha were these other works that aren't in any of these lists. And it meant from a false writer. And the most well-known ones are the Book of Jubilees, the Psalms of Solomon, and the Book of Enoch, which is actually quoted by Jude. Let's tell you just a few things so you know about them. You know what Jubilees means? A Jubilee was a 49 year period. So what he does is basically retelling of the book of Genesis Exodus, okay, based on a series of 50 year you know, cycles, 49 year cycles. So it's Genesis Exodus retold, but breaking it into patterns. Here's 50 years, like this going through there. But he has this other theme is that the law is pre existent, it eternally existed with God. Sort of like the Muslim view of the, the the Quran is eternal. You know, some people, you know, it's, you know, it's eternal with God somehow. So that's uh, what is no, um, uh Psalms of Solomon, there are 18 units, and the last two unit units are heavily messianic. And actually, they're probably written by Christians. I mean, it's just is really over the top. Yeah? When um, they talk about the law of the existence of uh, God, are they talking about everything down to, like, the detail? The cultural yeah, the, the, the this law, law. Yeah. Yeah, this is not. I guess this isn't anything recognized by any of the churches. This was, you know, this is Jubilees was a Jewish book. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it, you know, although I think they use it in Ethiopia, the, down there in that church, but it was a very Jew. They use everything, but they uh, they use a, It's a very Jewish book, and so there was almost like you know, most of them, they had this huge respect for the law. This is a very late book. And so the idea is just as the Muslims came to this later view, that some argue well the Quran's have got God and his word are eternal type of thing, almost a philosophical type of things. They're, you know, they're eternal, the Quran is somehow eternal. You know, and I think it's sort of that kind of idea of the law is it's you know, it's, it's at a whole different plane from anything else. and um, the Psalms of Solomon again, they're they're, 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 they're Psalms, they're, they're nice poems, but the last two are would like because they're probably were Christian glosses on them. And Enoch is very apocalyptic. It's a good read, it's, I mean, it's, fun. it's really interesting. Origin of Evil, The Angels and Their Destinies, you know, where did evil come from, the angels and their destinies, Gehenna and Paradise. People can't get enough of that, you know, like they get divine comedy. Okay, pre-existing Messiah, notions, speculations on meteorology and astronomy. Okay, and then we have various Christian interpolations. They actually add a lot of stuff in there uh, that were just Christian editions to that uh, book. So some questions here. What does the word apocrypha mean in Greek? Hidden. Hidden things. Things that are hidden. And it could mean two things, right? It could mean either hidden because, hey, don't pay attention, just don't look at this, or it could mean this is a special esoteric. Okay. What church father emphasized the difference between the apocrypha and the books of the Hebrew canon? Jerome, who is truly a great scholar. It's amazing in his time that he really stands out as a really good linguist. Okay, what does the term deuterocanonical mean? It's a term Roman Catholics use. (coughs) Second canon. Yeah, and it means all those books that we call Apocrypha, they say are part of the Bible, are inspired, but we accept the fact that they're sort of like a second canon. Okay. That's the term that Roman Catholics use. I just thought you would recognize it. When they say, when they, what we call apocrypha, they call, they call deuterocanonical books. So you'll recognize it. They're meaning the same thing. When they use apocrypha, they normally mean and traditionally meant what we would call those extra books beyond that. You know, first and second asterisk, Romanessum. Okay. How is the Anglican position on the apocrypha, both Catholic and Reformed? How is it Catholic? We still use them. We still read them. Okay. How is it Protestant performed? Still recognize that um, the books that are recognized from the, the Hebrew side, or the books that are recognized by everybody and nobody, is kind of our standard for recognizing those as being of some more important um, yeah. For for illustration, basically for for. Um, what the term we have, for, for example. And um, it's basically meant to be inspiring. They're just inspirational books. <coughs> and we have a long term. Since we've read them for 1,500 years together, they're a very special category. They're part of our history. And so that's it. But OK. Uh, which popular book of the Apocrypha has two different common titles for it? I'm sorry? The wisdom, oh no, the wisdom of Jesus. Son of Sirach. It's typically called either Sirach. That's normally what you find about the Bible called Sirach. But the common, the more common use in, in history has been Ecclesiasticus. So anything until modern times. But modern scholars always say Sirach is Ecclesiasticus. is a later title applied to it. But it, for most of history, it's been called the church book. Libra Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiasticus the, the church book. Okay. Any questions about the Apocrypha? Otherwise, we have 15 minutes or so. I take any other questions you have? or do a little more on yes. I'll yeah, so. I, I was wondering, because I, I didn't know in... The Shepherd of Hermes was an apocryphal book or not? Yeah. What it is, is that's in New Testament, but we okay. uh, we have no tradition of reading any New Testament books that aren't in the canonical New Testament. Okay. Got it. But it is. Actually, The uh, Shepherd of Hermes was very close to be accepted. I mean, it was actually in some manuscripts of the New Testament. That's why I asked, because I knew that it was really close. Real close. Of book. uh, books that almost made it, the closest book to making it, was uh, Shepherd of Hermes. By the way, if you haven't read the book, uh, that's it's that's not the title. The title of the book is The Shepherd. The guy who wrote it is called Hermas. So some people think we're thinking Hermos is a place, and there's some shepherd wandering. Around. No, there's a guy called Hermas who wrote a book called The Shepherd. But since the title, a lot of people who've ever read the book think, oh, there's must to be the shepherd wandering around Hermas or something. It's yeah, yeah. So, like there's a there's a joke in France about you know reading a translation of Romeo and Juliet or about English literature, and the professors ask the get up and say. Have you read Romeo and Juliet? He I've read Romeo, but I haven't read Juliet yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, but you're right. That really was the closest. Uh, people love that book. For reasons that escape me, I know the book, but um, yeah. uh, I'm not that impressed by the shape of it. So, apocryphal books are normally Old Testament-related books, not necessarily what? New Testament books that didn't... Well, actually, no, we, we can say is the trouble is the words have been used very, very differently. In uh, in modern times, we tend to describe as apocryphal almost anything which is in that time period that's religious that is not accepted in the canon. So when you look at things, now, people use the word very, very freely for anything. So they'll talk about And we have tons of apocryphal works. In we have a gospel of Peter, a gospel of Judas, we have the Acts of Paul. I mean, we really have a whole volume of. that weren't even thought of seriously though. uh, and we have tons of what's that? Yeah. Uh, yeah they had a they had an audience for them, but you know, anybody who's mentioned, you'll say Aquila and Paul, you know, people get their own book and things. People sort yeah. to fill in blank. Yeah like okay. that kind of fiction that's really good. Um, are there any books uh, in the New, in the New Testament that recognized that took a while to be read? Oh yeah. Written? Yeah. Um, Hebrews did? The reason hebrews is a really tough slide uh the reason hebrews did was because it doesn't claim to have be been written by an apostle you know it uh so the people tried to argue it by paul but honestly that's really a hard claim to make given the fact first of all the greek is nothing at all paul. i mean it's really uh some of the best greek in the new testament i mean it's really very classical. but more than that the themes are different i mean it never mentions the resurrection the whole theme uh, is, the theme of Christ the high priest is absent from Paul. It doesn't get you anywhere. Know, Paul is the resurrection, uh, here is the death of Jesus, and then death means action as high priest. So it doesn't have the themes, but it's associated, so the basic thing is probably associated with Paul. And that, that's what got you, know, but some people what bothered them is they tried to say one of the one of the criteria, the three criteria basically how things you might as well okay, if I sat down one Because I see at the guy by this time it's really it's a little hard. So, um, what did I just say? Hold oh, on, Yeah. Work yeah work oh, okay. With uh, with Hebrews and things, the three things they looked for basically was apostolic connection with the apostles. Why does Mark's gospel make it in things? Because Mark was Peter's, apostle, uh, Peter's secretary, and it, I think it really truly is the gospel of Peter from from Rome. I mean, it's, it has all. That. There's a lot of internal evidence. It's really, new. but the connection was Mark wouldn't have made it. Those people were not apostles. It was the connection that Peter had made. It. Luke's gospel makes because Luke and pa- Paul were partners, you know. So Luke, it's really the gospel of Paul, an apostle, you know, through Luke. Um, is you know, so that's, it's the Lucan connection. Hebrews didn't have that connection, which made it tough. Second Peter had rough, uh, rough going, uh, probably because it has a very troubling passage about uh, the possibility of repentance. You know, it was probably one of the reasons uh, Jude had trouble. Um, I think uh, Second and Third John. Uh, Revelation; uh, those are, I think, all the weak spots. But they came to be universally uh, recognized. Yeah. But again, uh, no one wrote them saying this is the word of God. You know, at first the church read the Old Testament. Yeah. It was only later on, when we had other things, we had to distinguish. Like the Jews, we, you know, the, it's like I think I explained to you. You know, when it comes to religion, for Judaism, there was only they were only Jews until the 18th century. It's only when you have the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, when people started to say, you can be a Jew without the light of all Moses, that people said, that's not Judaism, that you have Orthodox Jews. There were none. You were simply a Jew, or you weren't a Jew. There was nothing in this, even though there were varieties. Of that, we, But that was such a big change. Saying, no, we have to, we have, so basically, the Orthodox did that to separate themselves from people who they felt were going in a different direction. So basically, it's only when the other books start to become popular, we say, whoa, 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 before we go too far in this, you know, like you say, fan fiction. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, you know, we already have it by um, the, the Paschal Letter of Athanasius, famously that gives us the complete and nothing of, all and nothing but, the books of the New Testament. Every year he had an official declaration, a Paschal Letter, he sent out to everybody in, 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 in uh, his diocese in the, of the North of Egypt. And that's where he gives up the first definitive listing, where it has all and nothing but the books of the New Testament. And there's tons of, of, of Jewish literature, especially after we found the Nag, uh, uh, Hag, uh, I, can't, I can't believe this, but basically we found this treasure trove of, of, uh, uh, of writings, Gnostic writings, a treasure trove of those, you know, Gnostic Christian writings. And, and there are just tons of Jewish writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes, we have their writings, so we have a lot of writings from the period. But again, it wasn't much, most of the stuff was pretty, uh, with the New Testament, uh, like the Gospels and things. Uh, that was, uh, the only serious problem we had was somebody who didn't like the Bible general, which is Marcion. Marcion rejected the Jewish Bible. So obviously, and he thought of himself as being super Pauline, and so he only accepted some of Paul's epistles and a, a redacted version of the Gospel of Luke. But normally, you know, the, these, the four Gospels are pretty recognized weren't hard slides at all, actually Paul, not a hard slide. Epistles and Paul, you know, those were. There's only a few things. Uh, Hebrews, based on is it or is it not, somehow connected with an apostle. And uh, Revelation, because of some aspects of millenarianism, and then, the, um, you know, Second Peter, Second uh, and Third John, are the ones that are the, the, the toughest slide. Probably Hebrews is the toughest.